back to the East Career Cast, a series of audio interviews with leaders in the field of acute care surgery designed to provide you with practical information regarding career development, leadership, and career challenges. This week's episode is hosted by Dr. Prana Lata and Dr. Hassan Mashbray. They'll be interviewing Dr. Haitham Kafrani, and they'll be discussing the surgeon as the second victim. Dr. Laha can be found uh, on Twitter at Ladha underscore Purna. Dr. Mashbari can be found at at Hassan Mashbari. And Dr. Kafrani can be found at Hai Farani, H-A-Y-F-A-R-A-N-I. All right, here's the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of our East Career Casts. Today, we have with us Dr. Haytham Kafrani. And I'm joined also with my uh, colleague and co-host, uh, Hassan Mashbari. Awesome. Uh, I would like first to welcome Dr. Uh, Haytham Kafrani, who serves as an Associate Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School in Boston, with more than 10 years of experience as a surgeon and intensivist at Mass General Hospital in Boston. His previous roles include Director of uh, MGH Center of Outcomes and Patient Safety in Surgery, the COMPASS, Director of MGH Wound Care, as uh, MGH Wound Center and Director of Trauma and Emergency Surgery uh, Research at MGH. He's actually now served as the Chief Patient Safety Officer and Medical Director at the Joint Commission. In this role, Dr. Kafrani oversees initiatives related to patient safety and quality improvements. Uh, he, you know, he's recognized authority and speakers with more than 400 published peer review manuscript and text book chapters and with a great honor i can name him as one of my great mentors at during my fellowship training at mgh and as well as an east assigned mentor to me uh many years ago and uh, despite that very very illustrious bio we're going to be talking about none of that today instead we're gonna uh, take you to a topic uh, even closer to dr kafrani's heart we're going to talk about surgeon the second victim and uh, talk to Dr. Kafrani about his thoughts on how to support surgeons as we uh, do good work, but need to do good work for ourselves and each other as well. And we're going to allude to the talk he gave at the ACS Leadership Summit. Dr. Kafrani, the floor is yours. Uh, I just first want to say thank you uh, to both of you, to Hassan and you, Prerna, for the opportunity to be with you today. Uh, you're absolutely correct. This is a topic that's very dear to my heart. Um, I, I don't think surgeons are known to be touchy-feely. Definitely trauma surgeons are not known to be touchy-feely. And if you add to it what our um, you know, uh, audience might not appreciate, the fact that I'm not a bold, bearded, Middle Eastern trauma surgeon, I'm definitely not known to be touchy-feely. But the, the reason... Uh, I'm speaking to you today is because I, I had a story from uh, a few years ago, quite a few years ago when I was early in my career. And the story was related to a patient, a trauma patient who came to me in hemorrhagic shock after an industrial accident. His pelvis was crushed against the wall by a forklift and then he was impaled by a forklift. And I, you know, it was the calling of a trauma surgeon. I, I, took him immediately to the OR. I packed his pelvis. I embolized his internal iliacs. I put a conduit in his femoral artery that was shattered to restore circulation to his leg. 
I diverted his colon away because he had a rectal injury, diverted his urine away because he had a bladder injury and repaired the bladder and then packed his washed and, 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 and packed his pelvis. And the story goes as follows. He, he was very critical for a good three to four days. And uh, I kept telling his family, which at that point in time was his mother, and he had a 14 and a 16-year-old kid, that he's critical, he's critical. I'm not sure he's going to make it. But then by the fourth day, which was around Christmas time, he woke up in the in the ICU under sedation, and he was giving the thumbs up for us, and he's doing okay. He was mentally intact. He was off vasopressors. He looked pretty good. So I went to his mother and his 14 and 16-year-old kid, and I sat with them as usual, but this time I said, you know what? I think we did it. He's going to make it. We're all on the right trajectory. The next surgery is going to be just washing his wound and, and uh, you know, just making sure everything is okay. So his mother got excited and actually went home and made these cookies that she put in a beautifully decorated box um, that she gave to me. And I shared half of the cookies with the ICU. I took some of them to my family at home. My daughter, for a very long time, loved that box and kept it for years in her room. She puts her little letters and scraps of, of notes with her friends in it. But the reason I remember this case is because on that specific night, after operating maybe continuously for three, four days on him, I decided to go home and get some rest. And I went home and I got a phone call in the middle of the night from one of my partners who was in the hospital. And I, I will never forget what he said. He said, dude, your guy is going down the tubes. And what had happened is the patient developed a very severe necrotizing skin and soft tissue infection, and then, um, which made sense. I mean, he had a huge inoculum of bacteria from the rectal injury. He had a big wound. We took away the vascular supply of the pelvis by embolizing the internal iliacs, and we took also the profonda while putting the conduit in. So it was a, a recipe for that problem. On Christmas Day, his sickness was so bad that we just withdrew care and I sat with his kids and his mother and I told him I'm sorry you know he developed a bad infection that's it and he died now the reason I, I say this case is not because I'm not used to difficult situations I mean after all trauma acute care surgery we, we deal with difficult situations almost every day but because in my mind back then I kept having this recurrent thought that on the last case I did on him which was the fifth or sixth case I'm doing, it crossed my mind that the fat in the wound did not look shiny like it's supposed to. It looked a little bit dull. It wasn't dead, but it just looked pale. And I kept tormenting myself with the thought that I missed the early necrotizing skin and soft tissue infection, that if I was more experienced, if I was maybe less tired, whatever the reason, I was like just blaming myself for not debriding him on the last case I took him. And it was a debilitating feeling and I actually kept it to myself for quite a few days. It's only later that I opened up to colleagues and talking about it. So that's kind of my story. But then, you know, as I discovered later through my career, as I matured, it's the story of every single surgeon in the world it's just been a topic, in my opinion, that we've been sweeping under the rug for a very long time. And when I started talking openly about it, 
This is when I open a Pandora's box of surgeons want to talk about their cases and connecting and finding solutions how we could support each other. Awesome. Uh, so, Dr. Kafrani, I mean, we all know that this is not unique to you, but has this ever been formally surveyed? Does this only impact a handful? Yeah, the, very, very good question, Hassan. Uh, the topic has been studied in non-surgeons. Uh, there's a two or three, uh, probably more by now, studies in physicians and nurses about the second victim phenomenon, which the second victim phenomenon terminology was coined in, in, in the BMJ in the year 2000. So there was been some studies where they surveyed physicians or they surveyed nurses, but not surgeons in specific. And they had found that these feelings of inadequacy of guilt or shame or anxiety, or even getting embarrassed, if you want, were very prominent in physicians and nurses when this phenomenon happens. But our group, actually, it's funny you ask, because even though the story happened and I thought about it for many years, I came to the topic based on a study that was not intended to look at it from the second victim phenomenon. The study was called the BISA study, the Boston Intraoperative Adverse Events uh, Surgeon's Attitude uh, Study. And that was done in, I'm, I'm gonna say about six or seven years ago. So we surveyed all the Harvard surgeons. So the Mass General Brigham and Women Hospital, Beth Israel Hospital and Children's Hospital, we surveyed all the surgeons there about their attitude about intraoperative complications and intraoperative adverse events. And so we asked them about how they feel about transparency, the epidemiology. Well, some of the questions were related how it impacted them personally. And to be honest with you, that was part of the survey in my mind back then was not the most important one, but it turned out to be the most important one because the surgeons, they had the chance of leaving any free um if you want notes, if they if they wanted to, they didn't have to. And I had literally tens of pages of surgeons anonymously spilling their hearts and telling me about the cases that they suffered from years ago, they still think about and, and expressing their opinions that we need to do something about it. This is a big debilitating um, you know, issue for many, many of them. And that's where, when I looked at all those pages, and, and actually I started sharing them in scientific meetings. This is where the idea is like, okay, it's good to have the research, but what do we need to do about it? So yes, it's been surveyed and the results of the BISA survey showed that more than 80% of surgeons have severe feelings of anxiety, guilt, shame, and embarrassments after they have intraoperative complications. And actually the majority of them felt that the best support for them would be peers rather than their family. And actually quite a few of them revealed that they needed formal psychological help with psychiatrists and psychologists to get out of the situation. So those were the data specific to surgeons. And actually when we analyzed it at a sub-level, it didn't matter how experienced the surgeons are. It didn't matter how old or young they were. The gender didn't matter. It was unanimous among all surgeons. Wow, 80% of surgeons felt that way. 83% to be specific. That's a huge number and um, not at all surprising given the intensity of work we do. 
And while the culture of surgery is changing, obviously, so many people felt comfortable sharing their experiences. I can't help but notice that many of them might have shared them in an anonymous way. And the question I think in my mind is that while the culture is changing, we're still often in environments where we might hesitate to share our deepest feelings and thoughts for fear of judgment from colleagues or fear of punitive action. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Prerna, you, you're spot on. I think there are two major issues in surgery. Well, let me, let me put them as three that first make us more susceptible to the second victim phenomenon. That's one. And not only that, make us not seek assistance if you want. One of them is, I think surgery by itself is a high hazard field. And I actually think there is something special about surgery when, you know, you have music in the background, you're doing surgery, everything is going well, people are chatting in the team, and then the last snip of scissors that you take or the knife cut that you do, it results in major bleeding, and now the music is off, everybody is anxious, there's that tension in the room, but more importantly, there's this feel of you personally, physically cause harm to somebody. It's very different from when you give a medication, it has a side effect or you miss a diagnosis. The physical feeling makes us more susceptible. That's one. Two, it takes a certain courage and a certain belief in yourself. If you take a step back as a surgeon, to earn the confidence and trust of a patient to say, I'm going to take you. I'm going to literally open you up. I'm going to put you at the highest risks that we have in medicine. I'm going to get you safely through that. So that amount takes, you know, over the years has resulted in an aura of invincibility for surgeons, meaning you have to convince yourself you can do anything to have the confidence to tell a patient, put your trust in me, I can do it. And the third thing is the culture of surgery. And the, and the second and the third are related to each other. But yeah, over the years, the culture of medicine in general and the culture of surgery in particular tended to be uh, a blame and a finger-pointing kind of culture. And it comes from a good place. It comes from a place which Codman started say there should be accountability. Because back in the days, people would die and nobody would ask, what, what did we do wrong? Why didn't it die? So it came from a place of accountability, going to the root cause problems, understanding issues of competence, issues of training. But that developed into a culture of, that is very much blaming and finger pointing at surgeons, which makes us want to avoid that kind of feeling among the sharks, if you want. So between those three factors that I talked about, first, surgery itself being a high hazard field, a physical field. Two, the sense of invincibility that we have to have, the confidence we need to have to operate on patients. But three, the culture that started as a necessity but became maladaptive, it makes us as surgeons much more susceptible to the second victim phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting, and uh, we really appreciate your, your insight in that. But Dr. Kafrani, um, you took this step a step further, as you said, and you implemented a surgery-specific peer support program. Can you tell us 
a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, like, like I told you, we started as a research, we presented it in research meetings, but then we realized, and I give credit to Dr. Keith Lillimo, who's the chair of surgery at MGH, who called me into his office right after the meeting, actually texted me, he's like, we need to talk. I thought he's gonna be upset because you know, I'm airing the dirty laundry of Mass General and the Harvard hospitals in front of everybody. But actually, to, to his credit, he said, well, he told me a story of his own that he still remembers, which I cannot share with you. But he said, you know, we need to do something about this. So I did my literature search and I found there are peer support programs and employee assist programs all over the country. But I realized something that was very important, which is, Exactly like I do not know how to support a psychiatrist who lost a patient because they underestimated in the clinic how suicidal they are. I don't know how it feels. I've never lost a patient this way. The same way a pathologist who's never injured the patient themselves cannot support me as a surgeon. It takes certain credibility and a, and a, and a face validity of saying, I know how it feels. Let me support you through this. I've been in your shoes. So this was the essence, one of the, the, the essence of the peer support program we established. The second essence is, and that those two factors are most important for anybody interested in establishing such support systems, is I understood that surgeons will not ask for help by themselves. And I, you know, I differ from a lot of other people in this area. I created the program and I made it an opt-out program. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's happening. I'm normalizing sending somebody to peer support you, you can always say no, but I'm normalizing that this is the default and you have to refuse it. If you refuse it, you become out of the default. Because if I sat and waited for that phone to ring, surgeons will not call for help. They will just, you know, they will wear the yoke of perfection and I'm doing okay and nobody will call. Now, to go back to Hassan's question, how did we do it? So first we need to create the conceptual framework that a peer support is not is, is only filling a gap. The gap is between the formal psychology, psychiatry help, like employee assist programs, and the actual help of your unit, where you are, your division, your which happens every day. We just needed somebody more trained, but not as specialized to provide more sophisticated support. And second, you created the perceived need. So you had to do a little bit of education, get people to rally around the idea behind it, which we did. The second one was, where do we place this organizationally in, a, in the hospital? And we placed it under QA, quality assessment. And it's at, because we wanted it to be, to a certain way, protected by peer, as a peer review. So protected from litigation. But at the same time, we made sure the optics for it are not perceived at QA. So we separated completely from the QA process. They don't happen. They happen separately unrelated to each other they don't talk to each other the third one is you have to choose the right people to provide peer support and to do that we went to the people to all the residents in the program to all the attendings in the program of all specialties and we asked them who do you turn to when you need somebody to support you not for clinical advice but to support you and naturally names floated to the surface so we chose those people we told them congratulations You've been chosen by your colleagues as the go-to people. We had to provide a, a really meaningful training. And I did lean in my first training on other uh, experts in the field of peer support. And then we established not only lectures, but actually simulations 
of surgeons supporting surgeons and then we would have group discussions what they did right what they did wrong and then help them see their blind spots and we have plenty of them as surgeons because most importantly we all want to fix which is exactly the opposite of what you want to do as a peer supporter you do not want to fix you're there to support them and then we had to identify um, and triage events that need peer support and you just you know you you have to balance many factors into what things should enter into peer support i think word of mouth is the most important in the end once you're program is well established you just hear about the same event from multiple people sending you emails or texting you about it but then i would use my judgment in terms of is this something that needs peer support or not because it's always a balance of you don't want to make it meaningless for everything you send somebody to support because it would it will lose its meaningfulness in the noise but at the same time you want to make sure you're not leaving somebody behind who does need peer support and the last and most important part is what is the actual intervention? And that's part of the training. So, you know, there are five phases of recovery of, a, of a somebody who, who is a second victim and the peer supporter need to understand each phase, need to act differently on each phase of them. And we equip them with a lot of tools, not only with the training of how to support their peers and how to identify those who need a higher level of support which definitely happens. And thankfully, it was a good screening way of saying this person needs to see a psychologist, psychiatry, because they're not in a good place. Hopefully that helps and answers your question. I love uh, I love how you voluntold people. Congratulations, you're a peer supporter. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess one of the questions that I have, you know, much like uh, mentorship pairs that are just set, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. Uh, similarly, given that there was a peer supporter assigned, how often did you see this almost forced pairing work versus did you did you find that people were still gravitating towards peer supporters that they chose as friends as opposed to uh, the peer support that was provided via the program? And was there any potential for reassignment if you clicked yeah. with someone else? Very good question. The the surgeons did not choose their peer supporters. I chose who to send to who. And I'll tell you a little bit about that because it, it is a key question. But they had the chance to say if, if there's somebody they didn't feel comfortable with, uh, and I think it happened once or twice, they had the chance to say, you know, I, I want this peer support, but can I have somebody else? But the choice of who supports who took a lot of things into consideration. You know, the, the kind of events that a breast surgeon deals with they might not have less emotional impact on them, but they're very different than the events that a cardiac surgeon or a transplant surgeon um, have to deal with. Do I send somebody, the chair of surgery, to support a junior attending in their first year of training? There could be hierarchical issues here at play that make might make that surgeon uncomfortable. You know, give it a lot of thought of who goes to who. Uh, also some gender, some cultural. I mean, they're not very defined uh, ways, but definitely that's the beauty of having a surgery-specific peer support program that is local but big enough. You can play with these to ensure there's compatibility. Gotcha. Lo lots of thought. And I mean, that's great. I'm sure that that spelled the success of the program too. Yeah, you know, that's 100% sure. Uh, Dr. Tufrani, I know we a lot of questions so bear with us on that 
So my second question to you is that how do we become better peer supporters for our colleagues? What advice do you have for people wanting to start their own program as well? Two advice, one for those who want to be peer supporters and one for those who want to establish one, a peer support program. They're very different advice. For those who want to establish a peer support program, I say reach out to people who have done a peer support program and learn from their mistakes <laughs> and, <laughs> and ask them to help you establish. You will find, like myself, there are other people too who are very passionate about the topic and they will help you kickstart the right way because surgeons will only give you one chance. Um, for those who want to become peer supporters, this, I think surgeons are, I think I alluded to this before, surgeons want to fix. So you will need to fight that natural tendency in you. Your peers do not want you to, to tell them this is okay. Oh, this is nothing. The patient will be fine. The, your peers do not want you to, to hear how they can fix what happened and what to do about it. They just wanna want you to validate that they're not weak, they're not abnormal, their emotions are not alone, just normalizing how they feel about it and listening to them. You got to listen. Surgeons, we're not naturally good listeners. So the one advice is work on your listening skills. That That's incredible advice. As you were uh, telling us, you know, be better listeners. I was making a note to myself that that's definitely something that a lot of us can work on, including myself. Um, one question that I was uh, thinking of, you know, just in terms of applicability to myself and, uh, yeah, the, you know, younger surgeons and trainees was these days social media, you know, people post the best of the best. You only see photographs of successes and vacations and nobody really talks about the tough stuff and it gives this false sense of, oh, wow, everyone's excelling and I'm the only mess up. Uh, what advice do you have for uh, us very social media influenced uh, generation? It's interesting you ask this question. Um, I I actually think social media is undergoing a change. I do think when Facebook started the big wave and of social media, it was very much so. You know how everybody's life is perfect. They're always on vacation. They're always having fun. I think over the years, people are maturing about social media. And if you pay attention a little bit to the trends in social media, obviously they're trends, they're not truths. You'll find that there's a lot more traction for posts in social media that show the vulnerability and show the humanity in us. You see a lot of these things become viral because people are, you know, exposing themselves as vulnerable. And then they get a lot of support, a lot of positive support from a lot of people. So I, I look at social media now and I think instead of seeing it as a problem, I actually see it as an opportunity for issues like that to be discussed in a more transparent fashion and less perfectionist fashion, if you want. I think we can. That's a very interesting point. Uh, from both of you guys. So, Dr. Kafrani, I mean, we have a broad range of listeners, which includes surgeons in their earlier careers, fellows, and residents. What words of advice and wisdom do you have for them? 
since we're talking about the second victim phenomenon, so I'll focus my advice on that specific topic. My advice is you will encounter very difficult situations in your career. That's because of the nature of what you do. That's the nature of trying to help people in high-risk situations. And it will affect you no matter how strong you are. The one moral injury after the other of losing one patient after the other, whether it's gun violence or whether it's surgical complications or whether it's sometimes just serendipitous situations, just be aware of this cumulative effect of moral injury in you. Be aware of it and make it a source of strength for you. I think the way it becomes a source of strength is you acknowledge it to yourself rather than brush it uh, off and just convince yourself that you have a mask of invincibility. I actually think the strongest people I know are the people who deal with it upfront and accept that they're not feeling well about it. I think on the long term, they do much better. And actually, even better, people take incidents that happen to them as a calling to point it out to people, teaching other people about the mishaps that they went through, not worrying about their reputation per se, but more worrying about how can I prevent other patients from having the same complications as mine? Those two the best. Surround yourself by a good group of people who you can support each other in that fashion. And um, on the long term, I think they'll be in the best interest of your career, in the best interest of your patients, and the best interest of all patients that you can help in this way. That's about it, I think. That's my only advice. Dr. Kafrani, those words, I think, I'm, I'm so glad we're recording this because uh, I, I think that those are such valuable words of wisdom to, to be vulnerable and not, uh, and not hide behind that mask of bravado or, uh, or an ego that you typically associate with a surgical persona. Uh, including uh, the ones at the starting of their career. Uh, I just want to take a moment to thank you for uh, talking to us about something that's so pivotal and yet uh, doesn't get the attention it deserves. I think as surgeons, we are slowly recognizing that this is one of the most important things we can do for ourselves and each other and in turn for our patients. Uh, so thank you again for your time, for spending uh, so much time with us and uh, sharing your great words of wisdom. We're so grateful. I just want to say thank you both. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it half as much as I did. I hope the listeners will enjoy it half as much as I did. And uh, you guys keep doing this is amazing. And thank you again for the opportunity to speak to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Kafrani. And thank you, Brenna, for having us. Of course, this is uh, myself, Prerna Ladha, and my co-host, Hassan Mashbari, signing off on this episode of East Career Cast with our guest today, Dr. Haitham Kafrani. Uh, thanks all, and stay tuned for the next one. The Career Casts are brought to you by the Career Development Committee. If you have an idea for an episode, you can submit a proposal at east.org under the Education and Career Development section. You can also find us on Twitter at East underscore trauma, and I'm at SM Strait. That's S T R E I T. All right, until next time.